Once, when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? He replied, Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. That little incident at the end of the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua is an interesting little side note in the famous story of the siege and battle of Jericho. The story raises all kinds of ethical questions for modern readers. The Israelites, the Bible tells us, were not just the aggressors against the city that had not attacked them. They also went on to commit genocide against the inhabitants of the city. A key character in the story is a Jerichoan sex worker who betrays her city to that same genocidal enemy. And the only justification for such ethical crimes, we are told, is that it was all God's will. How can we blame mere mortals who follow divine directives? And yet, right in the middle of the story, we have this little episode, which seems to indicate that God is not really interested in taking sides among the nations of the world. One little indication that the story might just be a little more complicated than we have been led to believe. All good stories are. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.7 Pretty Canaanite Woman When the two men entered the city, they could not help but gawk. The city walls towered above their heads and were unlike anything that they had ever seen before. They saw the goods that were being carried to and from the marketplace, and could not believe that such things even existed in the world. The people around them could not help but laugh at them, with their eyes and mouths that were so open wide that they were catching flies. They looked like nomads, fresh from the desert. And indeed, that is what they were. Eliab, the younger of the two, turned to his companion and asked him, Okay, Salmon, we're here. What's next? Joshua told us that he wanted us to find out about this city. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? replied his companion. Isn't it obvious? We are going to the Red Lamp district. The Red Lamp district? You know, the place where the women of um, questionable virtue ply their trade? I've heard there is always such a district in a city like this. Apparently the women are quite uh, talented. Eliab was puzzled. But why would we go there? 
Oh, oh, is it because you think that the prostitutes might have some compromising information on the leaders of the city who come to them? We can maybe pay them for some good intel. Listen, Eliab, you can pay them for whatever you like. All I know is that I feel like I've been wandering around in a desert for like 40 years. I'm taking care of good old Salmon first. We'll have plenty of time to do whatever spying Joshua wants after a little bit of rest and relaxation. It did not take very long at all for the two men to find the Red Lamp District. There was no doubt that it was the very worst part of town. The houses of the women of the night were built right into the walls of the city. Many of them were little more than ramshackle structures that leaned against the wall. Salman could not help but notice that the walls that looked so strong and imposing from the outside were crumbling in certain spots on the inside. Over generations, the poor residents of this district had not hesitated to steal bricks and other materials from the massive structure to build their own homes. A few careful inquiries brought them to the home of Rahab, one of the city's most experienced prostitutes. She had certainly done a little better than many of her neighbors. Her house rose three stories against the wall and looked well built. Just to the left of it, the wall looked particularly thin. It was not all that hard to guess where the bricks for Rahab's house had come from. When Rahab saw the two dusty and shabbily dressed men at her door, she immediately recognized who she was dealing with. Oh my gods, she said to herself, could it be that the Hebrews have actually arrived here? Rahab had heard the talk among her clients for many months now of a large tribe of nomadic people that had gathered just beyond the Jordan River. They appeared to be large and numerous and experienced in battle. There was much fear among the people of the city that they might cross the Jordan and come here. Rahab had a somewhat confusing relationship with her city. It was the only home that she had ever known, and she loved it. But she often felt as if the city didn't much love her. As a prostitute, and a daughter of generations of prostitutes, she was generally despised by its leading citizens, even, and often especially, the ones who made regular use of her services. Though she, unlike many of her sisters, had been able to save up some money and live a bit more of a stable life, she was still forced to live in this part of the city near the wall where they were vulnerable to the dangers of thieves, raiders, and invaders alike. The people of Jericho had effectively set up the poorest and most despised portions of the population as a buffer between the wealthy and respected people of the city and the dangers of the outside world. There were certainly times when Rahab felt that she owed nothing to a city 
that valued her at nothing. Long ago, Rahab had vowed to herself that hers would be the last generation of streetwalkers in her family. She had carefully saved up her money to make some shrewd investments. When the price of flax fibers was very low in the marketplace, she bought them up and now had large stocks stored upon her roof where they were rotting, something that was a necessary step to freeing the fine fibers that would make excellent rope. She was teaching her sons, two bright young men, to weave the strands into rope. More recently, she had even managed to procure some valuable crimson dye at a very reasonable price. Soon, once her sons had perfected the art, she would be able to sell high-quality crimson ropes at a premium. She was determined that her sons would be strong and independent traders, and that they would do well in the world. She would show the people of Jericho that she and her family were not the garbage that people treated them as. Those were her dreams. But for the moment, she continued in the trade that her mother and her mother's mother had plied before her. So, despite the fact that she knew exactly who these two men were, she did not hesitate to invite them in and offer them a good time. A very good time. It was what she did best. And business was business. The sunrise peeked through the window the next morning. It shone upon Salmon, who lay still in the bed and crept across him until it finally found young Eliab, where he lay snoring on the floor. The woman of the house had left some time before, and was working quietly in the kitchen when she heard the knock at the door. She frowned. It was too early for customers, too early for anyone, really. She listened closely as her younger son went to open the door. She recognized the voice of the knocker immediately. It was the man who oversaw security for the king of Jericho, a long-standing client, but he was clearly not here for pleasure. Someone had seen the two men coming to her house, and he had been sent to bring them before the king. Many times over the subsequent years, Rahab asked herself why she did what she did next. She never quite decided what made her do it. More than anything else, in that moment, she felt her resentment against the city and how it treated her bubble up. She was damned if she was going to give her clients away for nothing. If word got out that she was anything but discreet with the people who came to her house, she would be ruined. She stepped up behind her son. Boy, she said, let me speak to our visitor today. Would you go up to the roof, please, and secure the flax? I feel that it's going to be very windy today, and I would hate for it to blow all over the place. 
There are a couple of heavy weights in my bedroom that you might be able to use. The boy went off to do as he had been asked. He was a smart lad and would understand what was needed. The man at the door, on the other hand, she knew to be quite the fool from long experience. Sometime later, after the officials had left, Rahab made her way to the roof and the stacks of flax. Hebrews, she hissed. They had told her their names the night before, but she didn't remember. Hebrews, you can come out now. I've sent the men away, told them that you left in the middle of the night and headed to the hill country. There was a stirring from the tall piles of damp, rotting flax, and two heads popped out. The men smelled exactly like you would expect people who have been hiding in piles of rotting fibers to smell, but there was nothing to be done about that. There would really be no time for anything more than a quick conversation. The three sat down. Up until this point, you need to understand, there had been no discussion about why the men had been sent into Jericho. They had simply presented themselves at her door as typical customers. They were rather shocked to discover that she knew who they were. But from Rahab's point of view, there really was no way she could have missed it. The greater mystery for Salmon and Eliab, however, was why Rahab had saved them from the searchers. "'Don't you understand,' said Salmon, "'that we were sent here to spy on the city? "'It is Joshua's intention for the militia of Israel "'to besiege and destroy Jericho.' "'I guessed as much,' replied Rahab. "'And don't get me wrong, I, I love my city, "'but there is something rotten at the core of it.' as rotten as this flax. I see how I and my sisters are treated. I see how the poor and the outcasts who live by the wall are despised and hated. I feel there is a doom on this city, and that it must not stand in the way of the justice that awaits it. Salman and Eliab did not argue. It was agreed that the two men would be allowed to escape. Rahab went to the far corner of the room and took out a long coil of rope. It wasn't one of the first that her sons had created. It had taken them forever, but it was extremely well made. She told the men that she would let them down outside the wall, through the window in the room where they had... Uh, you know, slept the night before. They were to go and hide in the hill country for a few days until the search parties gave up. Then they would be free to go. Eliab went down the robe first. But before he descended, Salmon turned to Rahab. We will not forget what you have done for us, he said. When the people of Israel come here, and they will come here, we will preserve your life. 
and the life of your family. That is all I can ask, replied Rahab. As he turned to go, Salman's eye picked up a flash of red in the far corner of the room. Is that rope? he asked. It looks so beautiful. How do you get a linen rope in such a fine color? Rahab smiled. She was very proud of her plan to create valuable ropes and very pleased with her initial experiments with the crimson dye. My son's made it, she said. I know. It is beautiful, isn't it? And it really stands out against a drab background, doesn't it? said Salmon thoughtfully. He quickly gave her instructions. She was to hang the beautiful crimson cord out of the window that he was about to descend when the Israelite army appeared outside the walls. That way, they would know exactly where she and her family were, and he could be sure to protect them. At least, he said that that was what the purpose was. With that, Salman's head disappeared over the edge of the window, and he was gone. It would be weeks before the people of Israel would finally arrive outside of Jericho. When they did, they took one look at the massive walls of the city and despaired. These walls looked as if they had stood for a thousand years and that they would stand for yet another thousand. Even Joshua, a man who seemed to have bronze flowing in his veins, was shaken. He believed that it was his destiny to lead his people to victory over the city, but he was also a very practical leader and could not imagine how such a thing might be accomplished. He summoned the two spies that he had sent out so many weeks before. You promised me, he reminded them. You said that this city could be taken and that these walls could not stop us. But now, when I see them, I have my doubts. What shall we do? It was Salmon who answered. My lord, he said, there are two things that make this city weak in the sight of Yahweh and in your sight. First, it is a place of injustice. In that city, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the outcasts are relegated to the edges and count for nothing. Their society is weak, and it will break under any strain. But second and more important, remember that Eliab and I have seen these walls both from the outside and the inside. There are places where the wall is little more than one layer of bricks, and I know one of those places. Do you see that window there in the wall? It has a crimson rope hanging from the sill. Joshua shaded his eyes and gazed into the distance. He nodded. There is a place on the wall about 30 cubits to the right of that crimson rope that is very thin indeed. This 
is what I would counsel you to do. Joshua did not tell all of the fighters about the mine. It was a closely guarded military secret. The crew of miners had started to dig a certain distance from the wall in a small hollow in the ground that was well shielded from view by trees and brush. The men were digging night and day, creating a small tunnel that they propped up with beams of wood. The tunnel was aimed straight as an arrow towards a certain section of the wall of the city, about thirty cubits to the right of a window that was marked with a crimson cord. To distract the men of Israel and the people of the city from what was really going on, Joshua staged an elaborate display of besieging the city. Every day he had all of his fighters form up outside the wall and make a procession around the entire circumference of the city just beyond the distance of a bowshot. At the head of the procession was the great ark, the symbol of the presence of Yahweh with his people. Behind the ark were seven priests who carried trumpets carved out of ram's horns. The horns were blown constantly as the people marched and shouted their jeers towards the city. It was all about intimidating the city and putting it under pressure by making sure its supplies of food and water could not get in. But the noise of the procession was also rather useful in masking any of the noise of the mining project. Finally, after many days, the mine was ready. The men filled the tunnel with wood and kindling and anything that they could find that would burn quickly. As they set it alight, Joshua took his fighters out for one final circuit of the walls. He timed it almost perfectly. By the time the Israelite army arrived near the place where the tunnel was located, just by that crimson rope, the fire in the mine finally burned its way through the supporting beams. At just the right moment, Joshua led the army in a great cheer. Shout, he commanded them. Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. While the people shouted and the priests sounded the ram's horns, the mine's structure collapsed, taking with it an entire section of the wall. The Israelites shouted all the louder and immediately began to storm through the breach as the slaughter began. The other Israelite fighters quickly made their way to the wealthier parts of town where there would be plenty of plunder. Salman and Eliab, for their part, turned and made their way to the house just beyond the edge of the rubble of the fallen wall. They pounded on the door and were very pleased when a pale and disheveled Rahab opened it. Her family, praise to Yahweh, had not been harmed since they had left. They quickly told them that they had to pack up whatever wealth they had and come with them. They were all in shock 
and mutely complied. I'd like to tell you that Rahab and her sons lived a good life among the Israelite interlopers after that, but that would be stretching it a bit. For the rest of her days, Rahab was haunted by the decisions that she had made. She was never sure that she had chosen well. In time, Salmon took her to wife and made her sons his own. This gave them all protection, and the boys did very well, skillfully making ropes that were very much needed by these new Israelites who began to take up residence and set down roots in this land that had once belonged only to the Canaanites. The story of the Battle of Jericho in the Bible is one that is very difficult to come to historical grips with. The archaeological evidence for the ancient city of Jericho is clear. The city existed and was destroyed a few times in its history, but there is no evidence of a destruction anywhere near the time of the Israelite conquest of Canaan. For that matter, there really isn't any archaeological evidence of an Israelite conquest of Canaan. This all seems to make it quite unlikely that there was any such battle as told in the Bible. And yet, at the same time, the story gives a very realistic account of the kind of battle that often was fought against walled cities in the ancient world. The encircling and undermining of walls was indeed a common practice. It is not too hard to believe that somebody's actual memory of being part of a siege lay somewhere behind this account. The account in the book of Joshua also drops enough details about the character of Rahab to make her very interesting indeed. When I read the account, I could not help but ask, why does she live on the very edge of the city? Why does she just happen to have large bales of rotting flax lying around on her roof and abundant supplies of rope and crimson dye? These all seem to be the evidence of a rope-making industry. And, yeah, that's not the business that she's supposed to be in. Most of all, why would she even consider betraying her own city to invaders? I'm not going to suggest that I have definitively answered those questions, but I have certainly had fun exploring them. The account in the book of Joshua ends by saying that Rahab and her family did live on among the Israelite tribes. This implies that she must have married an Israelite. But there are various traditions concerning whom she may have married. Some Jewish traditions hook her up with none other than Joshua himself. The tradition that she married a man named Salmon comes only from the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and nobody really has any idea where Matthew got that from. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please come back for a new episode at the end of next month. In the meantime, 
tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Riptide. The music is by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under the Creative Commons, and you will find links to it in the show notes. Send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.